Uhuru. You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast, an FM radio show broadcast live every Tuesday at 12 p.m. on Black Power 96.3 WBPU LP in St. Petersburg, Florida, and now available as a podcast as well. You can listen to us on Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg or follow us on Podbean at uhurusolidarity.podbean.com. Reparations in Action is the weekly program of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, the organization of white people working under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party, organizing in the white community to build the movement for reparations to African people. My name is Jamie Simpson, your host, and I am honored to introduce my uh, guest, chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee, the cadre organization of white people working for reparations and solidarity under the leadership of the African Liberation Movement, chairwoman Penny Hess, as well as the chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, Jesse Neville. Uhuru, and welcome back to the show. We also want to begin, as always, by saluting the chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, the chairman of the African Socialist International, the founder and leader of the Uhuru Movement, Chairman Omali Yeshitela, for uh, leading the African Liberation Movement under the leadership of the African working class for over 50 years. We'd like to salute Deputy Chair Ona Zene Yeshitela for leading the on-the-ground economic independence work of the African People's Socialist Party, the African People's Solidarity Committee, Black Power 96.3 FM, this radio station, and the African People's Education and Defense Fund, the baddest little nonprofit on planet Earth, whose mission is to address the grave disparities in economic development, human rights, healthcare, and education faced by the Black or African community. So we are a group of white people who are addressing other white people who listen to Black Power 96 so that you know that there is a role for you in the African liberation movement if you can unite with reparations to African people and winning other white people to that stance of solidarity with African liberation and reparations. So during this period of the colonial pandemic, we are going to be discussing the continuing disproportionate effect of the uh, colonial virus or COVID-19 on the African community here in the US and around the world. We're going to be discussing the ongoing campaign of make Wall Street pay reparations and uh, the question of JP Morgan Chase owing reparations to African people. And then we will check in with the Black Power Blueprint in St. Louis, Missouri and talk to Chara Masimba of the African People's Socialist Party. But first let's get right into the question of the colonial virus. As many of you may have heard, all of the states are beginning to reopen in this country for business, as even as current deaths in the U.S. are near 1.7 million, and uh, the rather cases are near 1.7 million, and deaths are just under 100,000. More and more statistics are being released about the extent to which the colonial virus is hitting the Afri African community and the indigenous Mexican communities. Uh, we turn now to Chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee, Penny Hess. Can you sum up the situation with the colonial virus? Yes, it's great to be here, Jamie, and thank you for, um, for having me on again. And I definitely want to salute Chairman Omalia Shatella, who is the leader of the Uhuru Movement, and Deputy Chair Onizanea Shatello, Director Akile, who is the leader of this radio station. And I um, am very excited to be here as a member of the African People's Solidarity Committee. 
So I wanted to say that, as we know, more and more is coming out now about the depth to which this virus has affected the African community. It's incredibly stark and profound. And I do think that we will need to do something in the future where we put all the statistics that we have had that we have and that have come out so far together and in, into one statement. Um, but I wanted to start with a study that came out, um, I believe on the 19th of May. And it was, it happened, yeah, it was came out on the 19th of May, and it breaks all of the cases down by the nationality or quote race of the people involved and um, the the um, what it's saying is you know breaks it down by white people Asians in, in the United States indigenous and uh, what they call Latino and then what they call black Americans or Africans as the Uhuru movement says so at the time of this writing on May 19th there were 20,195 Africans in the US who are known to have lost their lives to COVID-19. Um, and that is an increase of 3,040 deaths from their previous report, which had been eight days earlier. So I just wanted to put out some of the, um, some of the statistics that are in this report. So it's saying that, first of all, for each 100,000 Americans, all, all people, citizens or people in the United States, about 50 Africans have died from the coronavirus, a mortality rate more than double the rate for Asians and Latinos, and 2.4 times that of white people. So it's 50 per one, 100,000 Africans counting in the entire United States have died from the, what the party calls the colonial virus because it, it affects the African community so drastically. And um, this is a, a mortality rate double any other group and 2.4 times that of white people. So they're saying also that since we began reporting these data, Black Americans' COVID-19 mortality rate across the U.S. has never fallen below twice that of all other groups, revealing a durable pattern of disproportionality. In some cases, in some places, the multiple between Black and white mortality rates greatly exceeds the 2.4 overall figure that we've constructed from all the available data in the nation. In Kansas, for example, African residents are seven times more likely to die than white residents. In Wisconsin and Washington, D.C., the rate among Blacks is six times higher than it is for whites, while in Michigan and Missouri, it is five times greater. In Arkansas, Illinois, New York, South Carolina, and Tennessee, Africans are three times more likely to die of the virus than whites. In many states, the virus is also killing African residents several multiples more often 
than Asian and Latino residents. Disproportionately high mortality is more widespread for Africans in the United States than any other group. Blacks are dying at elevated rates relative to their population overall, and in 29 of the 41 jurisdictions we examined, collectively, they represent 12.9% of the population, but have suffered 25.1% of deaths. In other words, they are dying of the virus at a rate of roughly double their population share among all American deaths where race and ethnicity is known. So it goes on to say in 15 states, South Carolina, Michigan, Missouri, Kansas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Wisconsin, Alabama, Illinois, Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, Mississippi, Maryland, and New York, as well as for the District of Columbia, African residents' share of the deaths exceed their share of the population by 12 to 36 percentage points. These are exceptionally large disparities. With no state, in no state with 10 or more deaths from COVID-19 were African residents underrepresented in the COVID-19 mortality data. However, in eight states, and it names those states, Africans are dying at that time, roughly proportional to their population. The convergence of racial and geographic disparities in COVID-19 mortality in Connecticut, Michigan, New Jersey, and New York has resulted in more than one in 1,000. So I just wanna make that point because when you usually talk of contagious disease, you usually mm -hmm. speak in terms of the number per 100,000. So right. we're saying that in these states that the death rate for Africans was one in 1,000. And African residents you know, who have died. So in New York, the rate now exceeds two out of every 1,000 African residents in the state. And that is largely driven by New York City where the rate exceeds three per 1,000. But I also wanna say on that, that the data on New York City is that of the boroughs, Manhattan is the white borough. Manhattan is the upper class, you know, the, the moneyed sector is in right. Manhattan. And, and many of the different um, council districts, et cetera, in Manhattan have income rates of six figures as, as an average income. And there, the, the number of, of cases and certainly the number of deaths were minuscule and in some places none at all. The majority of the deaths were in Queens, um, Bronx, the Bronx and um, Brooklyn. And these are much more predominantly African and uh, what they call Latino. So, you know, so if you took the white factor out of, of New York City, and certainly if you took it out of the state, which is predominantly white, mm -hmm. uh, the, the rate per 1,000 would be much higher for, uh, for African people, you know, in the New York City area. But it, because it's blended with areas that 
don't have any deaths practically, you know, it brings down that number. So the number is extremely high for African people. And, you know, it's the, just other things that we would say now that the headlines that have been coming out this week are that um, more people killed by the the COVID-19 in New Orleans than Katrina mm -hmm. 10 years ago, or was that 15 years ago? More people have, have, and that was considered just a shocking number of people. I believe it was over um, 2,000. And it's mm -hmm. saying, um, yeah, it's saying that <clears throat> more have died, 2,500, than when Hurricane Katrina slammed the shores 15 years ago. And that was an article in the Wall Street Journal on May wow. 23rd. Um, and then, of course, and we've talked about this before, the white nurse who talked about, um, you know, who said that actual murder happened, you know, that white medical workers were actually killing Africans in the uh, Brooklyn and, and the Bronx and Queens hospitals at the height of, of the pandemic when it hit those areas and when it had, you know, this incredibly high rate of death. And, you know, we talked about that and, and with the use of ventilators in a very, very dangerous way, one of the doctors stepped down from a Brooklyn hospital and he, he resigned from the ICU um, because he said that, you know, I cannot in my conscience um, continue to administer these ventilators, in, you know, in the way that we're being told to do. So he stepped down, he resigned. And, and, and uh, can, can I just point out for our listeners, because I, I really appreciated you pointing out this doctor's testimony, Chairwoman Penny, and mm -hmm. his, his advice to anyone who, who does have to go to the hospital for the colonial virus uh, Dr. Cameron Kyle Seidel is is to resist the ventilator at all costs. Well, apparently they they all across the U.S. I read a small article and I don't have it right in front of me that they have overall changed the policy, but I don't know you know what that means because another point and and by the way people can read about this on the burningspear.com theburningspear.com, which is the Burning Spear online. There's an article about this, this whole case. But one of the things that was in the article written about it in the UK Daily Mail about a month ago was that there was a Republican senator, I believe from Minnesota, who pointed out that Medicaid is under the CARES Act is paying hospitals three times more for patients who were put on a ventilator. So it's in the material interest of these hospitals to, you know, to, to put people on ventilators and, and at the expense of their lives so that they can get more money. And there was an article also today um, in one of the papers saying that the richest hospitals, the hospitals that are in the white populations got something like um, a total of 500 billion, not, not per hospital, but for these, the segment of, I think these wealthy hospitals, they're all owned by the same corporation from the CARES Act, whereas the hospitals in 
impoverished areas got almost nothing. So it, you know, it's just all down the line, what the conditions are. And, and I've read that the hospitals are, are going bankrupt. The hospitals in the African communities are going bankrupt. So it's all down the line. I just want to say a couple more things that, you, you know, we've heard about the nursing homes and the massive deaths. In fact, deaths from COVID-19 in nursing homes is about one third of the total in the United States. Um, but you never heard about, well, what nationality are people in the nursing homes? So now a study has come out saying that Black and Latino nursing homes twice as hard hit by the deaths. Um, so, you know, it's just, it just goes on and on and on. One other thing that we've seen, or a couple more things that I will report on here, is this was in the UK Guardian, that across the US, Africans have died at a rate of 50.3 per 100,000, compared with, as we just put out basically, um, 20.7 for white people, 22.9 for Latinos, 22.7 for Asians, Asian Americans. That, that is such Africa. a stark number. Could, could mm -hmm. you just re repeat that for our listeners so that it sinks in? Yeah, it's 50 per 100,000. That was reported in the other uh, study as well. Compared with 20.7 for white people, 22.9 for Latinos and 22.7 for Asians. And more than 20,000 Africans, well now it was higher, I reported on what it was. I think it was 21,000 Africans um, and it is, uh, have died from the disease. And, and so in the entire African population, that's one in 2,000. One in 2,000 in the African community throughout the US have died from this. Um, and one other thing is that there was an article, and I believe that was in the that was in the Washington Post, but it was reporting on the fact that in the UK, 93% of the doctors who worked during the pandemic, um, you know, during the height, 93% who have died so far from COVID-19 have been non-white doctors. So that's South Asian, India, Pakistan, African, and others. They were not white and they're like baffled. They don't know why this has happened, etc. So, you know, there's, there's so much coming out and it's so clear that it is the colonial virus. Um, and that there was an article actually in the New York Times today, and I haven't had time to read the whole thing, written by an African woman who deals with questions of African health. And, you know, she's taking on the fact that Africans are being blamed for the conditions that, that are the so-called underlying conditions. One of them that they claim is obesity. And she's saying, and she calls it slavery. She said, it's not obesity, it's slavery. It's slavery, you know, and, and she's talking yeah. about the colonial conditions that African people face from the very beginning and until now. And, you know, she's making the point that, wait a minute, you know, it's that for African people, obesity might be 47% of the population, but for white people, it's 41% or 40%. Yeah. So, you know, that, that just doesn't, make sense when you look at what the conditions are. So 
time's up, but I did want to say that um, that there was an article, and maybe we can discuss this more next week, that was in um, the New York Times saying that, the, no, it was in the Washington Post on May 22nd, the quote, us and them pandemic shows America is still impervious to black pain. And I think that that's something that we really need to discuss. It's something that we see. It's why white people are out there attacking Africans, um, just parading their ability to die, not wear a mask, go out in big crowds, and you know have no sense whatsoever of recognizing what the conditions are that African people are going through with this pandemic alone. And, and the phrase in, in that article, if I'm not mistaken, over and over from white people we're hearing, it's not my problem. Why is not, yeah, I, I'm not worried about it. It's not my problem. Exactly. And, and like everything else in, in this world, it will eventually affect white people too. Right now, it is disproportionately affecting African people. This is, this is one world. So if, if we really want to see this end, we've got to put our stakes in reparations. Really appreciate you being on Reparations in Action today, Chairwoman Penny Hess. For our next segment on reparations in action, we want to turn to the Make Wall Street Pay Reparations campaign that the Uhuru Solidarity Movement is waging right now, which kicked off last Saturday with car actions in New York and Boston, in which carloads of reparations activists with USM and encircled J.P. Morgan Chase Bank locations, as well as the corporate headquarters in New York City, and even the residence of J.P. Morgan Chase's CEO, Jamie Dimon, demanding reparations from the U.S.'s largest bank worth over $2 trillion for its historic and present-day role in profiting from slavery, mass incarceration, police occupation, and the colonial COVID-19 pandemic. Jesse Neville, do we know if J.P. Morgan Chase has had any response to these actions and their demand for reparations? Uhuru Jamie Simpson, to be distinguished from Jamie Dimon, who we're going to be talking about. <laughs> thank uh, you. Thank you for having me on the show. And yes, we do know. I want to say a little bit about that. I also want to salute Chairwoman Penny Hess. Glad to be on the program with you as well. Uhuru. 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 And uh, yes, I'm, I'm glad to discuss this issue of the campaign of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement to target J.P. Morgan Chase for reparations to African people. We are demanding that J.P. Morgan Chase and their CEO uh, pay reparations specifically to the Black Power Blueprint program of the Uhuru Movement in St. Louis um, that's really involved in building in an independent African economy right there on the ground in St. Louis and forwarding the struggle of African people for political economic power over their lives and resources. And as, as Chairman Amalia Chatella said, reparations is about repairing the damage. And that is exactly what the Black Power Blueprint is doing. So, um, so we're targeting these banks, we're targeting Wall Street. And as you mentioned, USM, which is the organization of white people working under the leadership of the African People's Socialist Party, taking the reparations demand into the white community. What we are being called on in this period by our leadership, the chairman and the African People's Socialist Party, to do is to take the reparations demand to the highest echelons of parasitic capitalism. So we decided to go straight to the top, to the largest bank in the United States, J.P. Morgan Chase. And 
um, Hallie and Nina were on the show last week talking about the very dynamic and bold actions that took place where people were in cars, socially distanced if you and what have you, and they were honking their horns, blaring their horns. Hallie jumped out of her car and started uh, you know, chanting and, and speaking in front of the bank and it definitely made a splash. And we were even in front, comrades were in front of Jamie Dimon's house, his, uh, you know, his posh condo or whatever in, in New York. So, um, so, and before I talk about the response that we have heard, just for some context on uhurusolidarity.org, people can find an article called Five Reasons Why J.P. Morgan Chase Owes Reparations to African People. So, you know, that those reasons include the fact that J.P. Morgan Chase was heavily involved in the economy that arose through the enslavement of African people, uh, which is capitalism itself. And specifically, they actually accepted over 13,000 enslaved African human beings as collateral on loans. And mm -hmm. they themselves owned over a thousand enslaved African people. And they also were involved in giving, uh, they worked with an insurance company that insured slave owners and plantation owners. They've been financing the colonial prison industry for years. They were one of the biggest uh, banks to loan uh, money to GEO Group and Core Civic, the two biggest private prison companies. They are involved in drug trafficking, money laundering uh, for CIA-backed drug trafficking that targets the African community. And... They are one of many big banks to be profiting hugely from the colonial virus that we just heard about the horrific conditions, the genocidal impact that the colonial virus is having um, on the African community. And meanwhile, in this crisis, J.P. Morgan Chase and these other parasites are doing everything they can to squeeze every last, last drop of African people's wealth into their pockets. So, um, so we felt it was important to target them. I, I think that's fantastic. You know, just, just as you're saying this, uh, Jesse, I, I just thought it fitting to point out how vile it seems that J.P. Morgan Chase and Jamie Dimon are using these facts for PR for themselves. I, I noted that in, in April of, of 2019, it seems that Dimon, as representing J.P. Morgan, was in a, a, a committee hearing um, on the House Committee on uh, Financial uh, ongoings in in the uh in the senate and they were asked about their relationship several bank ceos were asked about their relationship to slavery and only jamie Dimon sat up and said yes jp morgan has origins in the slave trade and then there was this statement also about covid 19 needing to be a wake-up call about disparities yeah. um so, so so what do you think about that tack that J.P. Morgan seems to be taking, trying to use this fact of saying, yes, they were involved with the slave trade, and yes, there is, there are racial disparities in COVID-19 uh, to make themselves look progressive. How does that work well, into this campaign? Well, Jamie Dimon wasn't talking about racial disparities in COVID-19 until there were trucks and cars lined <laughs> up outside his house with banners that said, J.P. Morgan and Jamie Dimon profit while COVID-19 kills African and indigenous people. And then literally days later, this guy saunters into his uh, annual shareholders meeting and makes a statement that was clearly a response to the actions that had just taken place days earlier. 
he started talking about how the disparities in the black community are being exposed in a way like never before by the COVID-19 pandemic. And he even went so far as to say that uh, since the end of the Civil War, little had improved for the African community. As he put it, we have still not achieved parity. So that was very, very revealing. And it was a pretty clear indicator that he was impacted by the, just the very beginning. Like this campaign just got started and already we're seeing uh, spokes, you know, spokespersons and figureheads of the white ruling class uh, flinching in the face of this campaign and in the face of the demand to make Wall Street pay reparations. So I, yeah, and in addition to what you mentioned, because you know, actually, Jamie, what happened is that in 2005, the City Council of Chicago uh, passed an ordinance that was called something to the effect of the Slavery Disclosure Ordinance, where all businesses operating within, with, uh, in, in partnership with the City of Chicago were required to hire historians to research and disclose whether or not those companies had historical links to the slave trade. And obviously they all do. And JP Morgan in particular was really exposed in that process. And it was soon after that, that, that JP Morgan Chase tried to do some damage control by sending a, a little $5 million scholarship supposedly to uh, students at a university in Louisiana, which is where the two banks that merged into JP Morgan Chase uh, were located. The two banks, I think it was like Canal something bank and, and the Bank of Louisiana uh, that were involved in, in, in accepting enslaved Africans as collateral. That's why he sent money, they sent money to Louisiana. So it's like really superficial mm -hmm. thing that they did. And, um, but the thing is, we do think it's significant that they're being pushed into a corner, that they're having to say things like, you know, this is a problem that has to be dealt with. This is a wake up call. And there was an interview in the past, uh, Jamie Dimon said in, in an interview with NBC's Meet the Press, he said, quote, I want a more equitable society. I don't mind paying higher taxes. So we wanna take him up on that and say, you can pay your reparations tax directly to the black power blueprint. You should start now. We want him to put his money where his mouth is. And if Absolutely. Jamie Dimon, Yes. I mean, if he really thinks that nothing has changed since the end of the Civil War, then he needs to do something about it. He needs to yes. pay reparations to African people and specifically write a check to the African People's Education and Defense Fund for the Black Power Blueprint project. So we plan to uh, continue intensifying this demand and, and we intend to win reparations from not just this bank, but from the whole Wall Street and the money sector of parasitic capitalism as a whole. Wow, I, I think, th thank you so much for making that clear, Jesse, and it, especially the fact that these statements on behalf of Diamond, on behalf of JP Morgan Chase, don't come out of some place of conscience. They don't come out of some, some place on, on the part of this ruling class colonial entity of, of suddenly waking up to the horrors of colonialism and, and parasitic capitalism. They come from being forced into a corner, like you're describing, of being caught red-handed, of um, initiatives coming from the, the African community to demand 
in Chicago, for instance, that, that companies uh, disclose any relationship with the slave trade. And so J.P. Morgan, having had to do that, you see them on these these committees and they, they come across like like they're being, taking a progressive stance or something. But they're, they're simply doing what, what they have to do because they're in, a, in, in that corner that you described. They, has, they painted themselves into a historical corner with the evidence of their crimes. And to have them be able to do that and come across as, in comparison, uh, you know, good, upstanding business people is, is just sickening. It's just disgusting to see the look on, on their faces at admitting that and then not having to pay any real consequence for that. So I think it's absolutely apt that the African People's Socialist Party has called on the Uhuru Solidarity Movement to be there with that demand, that they, they make good on this admission of guilt and pay reparations. Chairman Penny, any, any thoughts on, on this question of make Wall Street pay reparations and J.P. Morgan Chase's role? Well, I know that, you know, the, the goal is to haunt them, as Chairman O'Malley yes. Chatella says. And we, you know, we're just beginning that. And already, you know, after one action to his house, and then two days later, he has to make this statement, which he wouldn't have made. There's no way he would have made that. But yet it also shows, you know, the, the, the importance of doing the actions. We're going to make him pay. We're, you know, this is going to win. He has yeah. to turn over resources to the Black Power Blueprint and to the programs of Black Star Industries and, you know, just political and economic power in the hands of the African working class. And if, you know, if we've elicited this reaction from him, this response, after one action, <laughs> we're going to win. You know, this yeah. is, this is, we are part of the strategy of the African People's Socialist Party to be the voice of black power, of the voice of the African working class on the pedestal within the colonizer nation. And he knows, he knows that this is, this is correct, mm -hmm. that he owes reparations, absolutely. So he's already admitted to it in 2005 when he was exposed through a lawsuit, just on that level alone, like the participation in the enslavement of African people and owning, I think, a total of 14,000 Africans as collateral, etc. Um, so, you know, it's, this is powerful. This is powerful. This is going to be an incredible campaign and you're going to hear a lot more about it. And to, to a certain extent, um, Jesse and, and Chairman Penny, do, do you think that uh, J.P. Morgan and other capitalist entities like J.P. Morgan from the ruling class are looking toward reparations payments as, as a buy-off, as a way to maintain the system, as a way to hold off revolution? Well, of course. I mean, they're totally scared. I mean, they're not going <laughs> to right now. They're certainly looking at that. And they, that's good. Let them, you know, whatever. They, they want to hold it off. But in any case, it's going to push them to acknowledge this. If they have to pay reparations to the African working class, not to something they make up. That, right. Because that's part of the struggle. Mm -hmm. It has to be to this, not to, okay, we'll give a scholarship fund for people within a four-mile radius of some place in Louisiana. No, we're not going to do exactly. that. Right. You know, and, and this is going to be what what the Uhuru movement, what the Black Power Blueprint says it has to be. That's part of the struggle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Th th there's there's no uh, 
small down payment on reparations that's going to end this this flow of, right. of the truth and of the truth coming out and the necessary resources to the African uh, working class that, that will be required. Mm -hmm. so, exactly. Um, and, and one payment or whatever they would do, it's not over. Right. <laughs> because all of it is owed. And this is what the struggle is. This is mm -hmm. what distinguishes the Uhuru movement, the African People's Socialist Party's demand for reparations from from anybody else that's out there. This is not about a lawsuit. This is not about, um, you know, passing um, something at city council, although, you know, that might be something that we do and call for. Mm -hmm. But this is much deeper than that because it's recognizing that all wealth is in the United States and around the world is on a foundation of the assault on Africa the turning of African people into commodities, into work machines, into collateral, into you know commodities that were worth more than anything else in the United States and other places in the world. It is the foundation of this entire system. And that is what the party has called parasitic capitalism. So you know, um, this is reparations is saying it's all owed to Africans. It's all owed to them. So this is going to be an amazing struggle. And I think that we're going to win so much and many other white people to join us. And I think maybe Jesse should tell us where people can go to join it and be part of it. Yes. You can definitely do that at uhurusolidarity.org slash wallstreet. You can sign up and become involved in this campaign. And um, I just wanted to mention that on that website, you can find a video of Chairman Amali Yishatela speaking at Occupy Wall Street in Oakland, California in 2011. And I highly recommend that people watch that video because in that video, the mm -hmm. chairman basically said to the white people who were out demonstrating against Wall Street, he said, you know, welcome to the club. We have been doing this for hundreds of years. The struggle against Wall Street was begun by African and indigenous people who built Wall Street, whose enslavement and colonization was the foundation for Wall Street. And, you know, we've talked before about the uh, incredible, um, you know, African in, uh, revolt that took place, the uprising of enslaved African people in, I believe, 1721 in New York. That was the struggle against Wall Street. That was the strike against parasitic capitalism. And, you know, we, we want to continue in, that, in those footsteps. We want to continue under the leadership of the African liberation movement in waging this campaign as a struggle against parasitic capitalism and for reparations as a function of the revolutionary struggle for socialism under the leadership of the African working class. So I just really appreciate what Chairwoman Penny said that, you know, we have to look at this, this isn't about, oh, they're really corrupt and we need to right. get big, big money out of politics and we are the 99% and you know, whatever. That's not what this is about. This is not Occupy 2.0. Mm -hmm. Make Wall Street pay reparations is, is, a, camp, is a campaign of, against capitalism and for socialism. And our, our role in that is to do what we have to do to wage struggle with our own ruling class. Like this is class struggle. This is yes. how we can be involved in genuine class struggle as white people by joining the anti-colonial struggle for reparations to African people. 
Uhuru, you know, and as I've heard you say before, Jesse, I've, I've heard uh, Chairman Amalia Shetela say it before, this is, this is going for the jugular mm-hmm. of, of the ruling class. And I, I really think that to our listeners, to anyone, uh, you know, who at all is excited by this, uh, sees their interest in the masses of the world rather than this parasite on the body of humanity, the white ruling class, now is the time. This is the time when their lily white necks are exposed and that beating vein of resources is visible and it needs to go back to African people. That, that, those are resources that we're not, and I think that what, uh, what these corporations, what this ruling class is thinking of is that, that simply money will be enough. And as I've heard uh, you say in the African People's Solidarity Committee before, Comrade Jesse, African people are owed a lot more than money. This is, yeah. this is about a return of, of the ability of African people to uh, create and recreate real human life for themselves once again, to have self-determination, to have sovereignty. And that's, that necessarily will mean that the end of, of this ruling class party. So if this is something you want to see, I encourage you to check out uh, uhurusolidarity.org for more information. And Jesse Neville of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement Penny Hess of the African People Solidarity Committee, thank you so much for joining us again on Reparations in Action. On today's Reparations in Action, we are honored to be joined by the Economic Development Director of the Black Power Blueprint, Tcharwa Masimba. Tcharwa Masimba is also a board member of the African People's Education and Defense Fund and a member of the African People's Socialist Party. Uhuru, and welcome to Reparations in Action, Tcharwa Masimba. Uhuru, Jamie, I'm well. I'm happy to be here. This is a, a real groundbreaking show and a real groundbreaking uh, campaign that uh, the Uhuru Solidarity Movement is leading. We really appreciate you taking time to talk with us today, Tcharwa, and um, really uh, are thrilled that we have an opportunity to talk about what you are so concerned with, what, what you work around, which is the Black Power Blueprint. Could you explain to our listeners what the Black Power Blueprint is and what your role is in it as Economic Development Director? Yeah, uh, the Black Power Blueprint is this, in our, this incredible project that uh, is centered in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, and it, uh, we developed this uh, name to characterize the work that we were doing, uh, calling it the Black Power Blueprint. But what we've been doing is, uh, you know, we've gone right into the heart of North St. Louis, a predominantly African community, where the uh, you know, average income for about 30% of the population is about $5 a day. Um, so it is, um, looks like a literal war zone in some places, you know, as a consequence of this community having been bled economically. And, you know, we have all the evidence, uh, not just for St. Louis, but for African people throughout the U.S., uh, that this community has been intentionally bled so as to disperse the population of uh, African people um, out of these uh, urban centers to prevent any kind of uh, possibility for rebellion and uh, for a challenge to the social system. Uh, which came out of the uh, 1960s, or the greatest evidence of which uh, we saw in the 1960s with this incredible revolutionary struggle. And so this community has not uh, received any kinds of resources at all. 
And, uh, you know, you see decaying buildings, uh, structures are just dilapidating all around you. I mean, you literally see whole blocks uh, with no, you know, with uh, abandoned after abandoned building or torn down buildings. You know, you may have uh, hundreds of yards of space with no buildings, uh, no kind of structures. And so uh, this is the, uh, what this community has dealt with. Now, this is my home. You know, it's a community of beautiful people. Uh, but we just have not had an economy uh, that it works in our interest. And so we went in uh, under the direct leadership of uh, Deputy Chair Onizene Ishitella, uh, board member of the African People's, uh, board president of the African People's Education and Defense Fund and a member of the African People's Socialist Party, um, whom I, I report to directly. She came in, um, <clears throat> we looked at some buildings that we could purchase uh, a new Uhuru house, um, which is a, a banquet hall and community offices and really a political, cultural, economic center uh, of the African People's Socialist Party for the people. Uh, we have them in different cities and we wanted one in St. Louis. So she came in, she looked at uh, buildings with us and we saw one that was uh, you know, abandoned, had been abandoned for, we believe for about 18 years, surrounded by other abandoned buildings. And when I, uh, when I first began to work with uh, APDF, you know, I didn't realize that <clears throat> this is the kind of community that we wanted to be in. Um, but this is right where we wanted to be. So we, uh, we redeveloped uh, this building, 9,000 square foot building, turned it into a beautiful banquet hall. We now have offices on the second and third floor. It was an incredible project where we had volunteers come from different parts of the country. Uh, we uh, mobilized people throughout St. Louis to participate uh, in building this project. I mean, it was, uh, you know, we had very cold, cold winters, um, or oh, a cold winter because we, because we finished it in about nine months. Uh, you know, where we didn't have any kind of heat uh, in the winter, no air mm -hmm. in the summer, but we had volunteers who came in, you know, week after week to uh, rebuild this project. And we had orientations in the building, even though we didn't have electricity, uh, you know, we would have to figure out ways to give presentations to help people understand the significance of what we, we were doing. So we had our laptops out, but we were bundled in our coats, you know, freezing and, uh, you know, right and right next to us, you know, we would be in a room where, uh, you know, we would see a, a, there was an empty mat mattress, uh, you know, and at one point it had needles and baby pampers from people having to live in and obviously raised uh, infant children inside of this abandoned building. Um, so this is wow. what we uh, were facing. And uh, Deputy Chair came in and uh, was willing to do absolutely anything and everything to make this happen. She brought in uh, Kitty Riley as well, uh, Solidarity Force, uh, to begin to organize in the white community. And this was a vision of Chairman O'Malley Ishitella, um, who knows no boundaries in terms of the uh, possibilities of uh, the African working class. So we purchased that building, uh, we renovated it in about nine months, incredible volunteers, mostly African, uh, some Mexican uh, workers, women as well. Um, and then we began to just uh, purchase more and more property. You know, so right uh, in the midst of this um, incredible, you know, kind of uh, uh, impoverishment, intentional impoverishment, uh, it gave us the ability to continue to purchase more property. So 
you know, we purchased a building uh, that we will renovate uh, and turn into housing for people getting out of prison. Uh, we purchased another uh, 4,500 square foot structure that will be home to a commercial kitchen uh, and bakery cafe, and also a workforce program where those same people who uh, can benefit from the housing after they get out of prison can also participate in the workforce program. Um, and we also began, uh, we also demolished two buildings right across the street from the Uhura House. Uh, we couldn't save them. They were previous businesses, but we had to demolish the buildings. And we are turning that now into the One Africa, One Nation Marketplace and the Gary Brooks Community Garden. So we purchased other properties or we're, as well. We're continuing to bid for other properties. And we are just trying to buy everything we can and turn it into um, something that is, uh, a, you know, organized to provide food, uh, housing, clothing, and shelter uh, for the African community and to give the African community and African working class in particular the capacity to wage uh, all kinds of political struggle, to rebuild the culture in the community, et cetera. So that's the Black Power Blueprint that has reverberated all across the world. I'm talking to T'Challa Masimba. He is Economic uh, Development Director of the Black Power Blueprint. And I want to thank you, Comrade T'Challa, for that incredible overview of the Black Power Blueprint that, that really gives uh, such a clear picture of a, a dynamic revolutionary movement. I want to salute Deputy Chair Onazene Yeshatela uh, for, for her vision. I want to salute you and uh, all the comrades who have done so much to build up this uh, vision of an independent African working class economy. Um, are there, and we see so many inspiring pictures of, of the work that you're talking about to uh, demolish the buildings that created the, the new Uhura House there in St. Louis. Have there been any developments uh, recently with the Black Power Blueprint project that you want to update our listeners on? Yeah, I think um, to properly place it in context, we have to address, you know, what happened, uh, this pandemic that uh, hit the world with COVID-19. Um, you know, we were right in the thick of uh, this process of continuing the development of, of the Black Power Blueprint with a focus on developing the outdoor market space. So, you know, prior to COVID-19, we had, uh, um, you know, working with the uh, wonderful contractors, Paradigm uh, Builders, among others, you know, we had just built the stage uh, on this new beautiful space. We had just poured uh, uh, the concrete for a new walkway and just, you know, just built a new pathway that meanders through the space. Um, we had just uh, received um, the plants and trees and flowers that would be planted in the uh, uh, Gary Brooks Community Garden. Um, you know, we were looking forward to planting grass and bringing in soil um, and just really developing the space. And, you know, you, you see this beautiful red, black and green flag sitting right in the middle, 50 feet tall, 25 by 15 foot uh, size flag. And all of this was brought to a halt, you know, when this uh, pandemic hit the world. And, we see that it has affected African people more than anybody. You know, we see uh, rates of 70, 80% or more uh, of all the uh, deaths uh, concentrated among African people in different places. And in St. Louis for a while, 100%, up until about a month ago, 100% of all the deaths were African people. Uh, so this brought everything to a halt, you know, and we did not want to jeopardize the safety of, uh, you know, people who were organizing with us and, 
you know, <clears throat> members of the Black Power Blueprint or anybody. So we shut down and, you know, we brought things to a halt. But uh, lo and behold, um, you know, because of, as a testament to the effective work that uh, Deputy Chair and others have done in organizing the community, you know, we had Mr. Gary Brooks and his family, his brother, his, his nephew uh, in particular, who live right next door to the garden that we named after him. Uh, they, they refused to really stop. And, uh, you know, we really didn't want them to jeopardize themselves, but they put, they put uh, masks on, gloves on, practiced social distancing, and they continue to develop this uh, garden. You know, they you know, watered the dirt. Mm -hmm. Wow. We, we hear a lot about this garden, the Gary Brooks Community Garden. I'm just encouraged. Could, could you continue to speak to this garden and why you think it is so popular with the community? Yeah, yeah. It's a garden, you know. But the thing is that uh, for many reasons, you know, you know, people have been one to this notion of, um, you know, ha us African people gaining control of our food production, even mm -hmm. if they don't necessarily characterize it like that. And when COVID-19 hit, you know, it was a scary thing for people because we literally did not know, still can't say for certain that we will be able to get food the next day. I mean, that's a literal fear. You know, we see uh, yeah. uh, grocery stores and uh, uh, farmers, you know, the food is infected or people are dying as a, in the process of producing food. And, you know, so this really exacerbated this whole question of how we produce food. And so we, you know, I think Mr. Brooks and others really especially recognize the need to get this garden going because we have to ensure the capacity, our capacity to feed ourselves. And um, so that's partially what it represents. And uh, he, they began planting, uh, you know, bell peppers, oregano, yellow onions, broccoli, flowers, tomatoes. They uh, ordered the wood to build the garden boxes, uh, the planter boxes to plant the, the garden in. They ordered the uh, dirt and, you know, uh, put soil down and planted the grass. I mean, all of this was done, especially by the community. You know, mm -hmm. we didn't do it. Um, and so that's a testament to how one uh, some people are to this project. It sounds like true people power to me, um, that the, the African community empowered in, in its own interests. Um, can, can you speak also, you, you mentioned the, the uh, large red, black, and green African flag that flies over the Black Power Blueprint and Uhura House in St. Louis. Can you speak to the significance of these, of these colors, red, black, and green, and, and the flag to the Black Power Blueprint and the community? Yeah, first of all, this flag is, uh, the flagpole is 50 feet high. Wow. Uh, so it, uh, it is a giant in the sky. And people can see it from, you know, how, however far away. And we've had people literally say that they were walking in one direction and from afar they could see in the sky this beautiful monumental looking red black and green flag and you know one person told me that he turned around he was going to the bank or something and he was with his son and uh he wanted his son to see this monument that he looked up and saw in the sky and they so they turned and went in the other direction and, and just followed the flag until they found it and uh you know i met them there you know, so it, we see that kind of reaction. We see people pulling over, taking pictures of it. You know, when we describe the space and where we are, we can describe it by this huge 
uh, monument. And not everybody knows about Marcus Garvey and the UNIA and ACL uh, that built, you know, that uh, voted on 100 years ago, the creation of this flag as we really, you know, this Garvey movement had begun to create an African gov worldwide government. Um, they may not know the specifics of it, but they know it represents African people. And it is a testament to self-determination. And so the red, black, and green, you know, representing red, uh, representing struggle uh, and blood we shed in the context of struggle, uh, black for black people, you know, the African work, African nation, and uh, green, you know, representing in many ways this garden um, and, you know, youth and land. Right, and the, the, the resources is what I think of too, of uh, that, that belong to African people, the, the, the wealth Absolutely. of the people, the wealth of Africa. Tacharwa Mastimba, Economic Director of the Black Power Blueprint, Board Member of the African People's Education Defense Fund, Member of the African People's Socialist Party. Thank you so much for joining us for this critical discussion of the Black Power Blueprint today on Reparations in Action.